Well, it's good to be here at Porchlight Baptist Church this morning. Glad to have those that's here and watching online as well. Uh, before we get into the message, I would like to give a few prayer requests. Uh, keep praying for my mom. She's in Arbor Ridge there in Stanleyville, North Carolina. Pray for her continued uh, strength and health and that her legs, she can walk better. Uh, pray for my cousin, Angela. She's having some health issues and uh, would like to have your prayers. Remember Martha Roberts, that's uh, my brother-in-law Wayne's sister. She has cancer. Remember her. Also remember our, our missionaries on the mission field, the Blands, the Sodders, and the Marshalls. And then uh, remember the lost. Remember our church. And uh, pray for Northside Baptist Church. They've been without a pastor for about two years now. And so pray for them, that the Lord will guide them and direct them to uh, who they need to uh, uh, lead that church. And uh, I guess that's all the prayer requests I have, at least on my list here this morning. And it's good to be here today and uh, feeling better. We've been uh, sick, me and my youngest daughter and my son. We've all had a, a cold, um, a pretty bad one, but it's uh, seemed to be getting better on everybody. And so I'm grateful for that. But uh, we are going to be preaching this morning out of the, the Gospel of John. So we're continuing with our sermon series. This will be part number 16. And uh, fittingly, the verse is we're going to look at today is verse 16. John 3, 16. John chapter 3, verse 16. I've titled the message, For God So Loved the World. All right. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the reading of your word. We thank you, Lord, for those that are here and listening. God, those online and listening. Lord, we're praying that you help us as we try to preach this. Lord, you know what, what needs to be said here today. God, you know what we have prepared, but Lord, guide us in it. And Lord, help us preach. And may we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. There's only 25 words in that one verse, but this is probably the most known verse in all the world of the Bible. Uh, I don't like to use the word famous because uh, it's not really, I wouldn't say famous, but everybody has at least seen John 3.16 somewhere. Even those that don't know anything about the Bible, they may have watched a football game and saw maybe a, a football player with John 3.16 on his cheek. Um, so uh, it's, it's out there. Um, but these short little 25 words have brought more hope to the lost and the sinner than any other verse probably in the Bible. In this verse, we find God's love that's introduced to the world. Uh, we find Jesus being offered to a lot of, to, of those in the darkness. We see hope being brought to the hopeless. And we see love being brought to the loveless. That'd be us. Uh, life being brought to the dying, that would be us as well. And heaven offered to the hellbound, us as well. Uh, so the world it talks about. Now, I'm going to look at this verse and break it down. And I know it's only one verse, but so much in here. Uh, I actually had to cut this message short because it was getting too long. And so maybe a part two, but uh, some of the, the last part of it will continue in the next message out of John because it goes with those next verses. 
But it is this verse is the one that I first memorized. Probably most people that's been brought up in church, that's the verse they memorize first. And I can remember still being five years old. And we, at that time, attended North Acres Baptist Church where my grandfather, Preacher Ed Spencer, was the pastor there. And I can remember in Sunday school class, all of us kids, uh, learning that verse and then getting in front of the church there at the beginning of the service. We'd all line up there at the, at the altar and we would quote that verse and we would sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, my kids grew up that way. I remember them across the altar there in the church singing and, and uh, quoting scripture. Um, there was a time when John 3.16 could be found all over Knoxville and the South. Anywhere you went, you would see it posted in places. I can remember going into grocery stores back when I was a child and seeing uh, John 3.16 back behind the cashier on the wall. Uh, I can remember seeing it in people's yards. I can see it, remember it being on the side of barns. Uh, John 3.16 uh, was out there in this world. And if I were allowed only one verse of Scripture to be able to have for the rest of my life, it would, it would be John 3.16. Um, look, at, look at it again and look, read it there. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, we know that leading up to this, we had Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the ruler of the Jews that came to Jesus by night. Jesus is explaining how that he can have eternal life. And he gets into this, is speaking about how salvation is, is possible. How God um, uh, introduces salvation to man. And it's through his son, Jesus. And uh, we find some things here. I want to break down some, some of the phrases in it and, and words. And the first, I want to look at that first section there where it says, For God so loved the world. Now, we all have an idea of what the world is. I mean, when you think about the world, you think about everything, the whole universe or, or whatever. Uh, I like how Thayer's Greek dictionary defines the word world. And it says, The ungodly multitude the whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. That would be the world. <laughs> that would be the world. So the world includes a lot of things. Murderers, fornicators, uh, cheaters, whoremongers, rapists, uh, any kind of wicked sinner you could imagine it includes in the world. And not only that, but cheaters, liars, um, gossipers, how about we just put us in there? How about we put all mankind in the world here? So that includes you and that includes me when we're talking about the world. Now, to think that a perfect, holy, righteous God, the God that created this world, created all of mankind. He remembers he, as he breathed in the nostrils there of Adam uh, when he first created him and he brought life into man. And man became a living soul, the Bible says. And to think of how far downhill we went from that point. God had created a perfect individual that could live forever. He was sin-free until that sin came into the world uh, through partaking of the fruit that God had forbid him and uh, Eve to take of. And he took of it, and therefore sin entered into the world and into mankind, and that's when sickness began. 
That's when disease began. Mary and I was talking last night about when's the last time that we woke up and were was completely free of any kind of medical problem or physical uh, problem. Uh, it's been a long, long time. And so because of sin, sickness entered the world. Those colds that we had this past two weeks, that's because of sin. Now, I'm not saying because you committed some sin, God caused you to have a cold. No, but bad things happened to man. Man was made perfect. Man had a had a, a body that was could withstand any kind of disease. There was no disease at that time until sin entered in. And so sin brought so many things into this world. Now, but like I was saying, to think that a perfect, holy, righteous God would love people like us, uh, rebellious, hell-bound sinners, so much that he's willing to sacrifice his own son to save us. Uh, it's hard to fathom that kind of love because earthly love, fleshly love, physical love, human love is so much unlike God's love. It's nothing like God's love. God's love is a perfect love, and God's love is self-sacrificing. True love is self-sacrificing. True love means that you will do anything, you'll do whatever it takes for that person or thing that you love because it's that's just the way it is. But God's love is so self-sacrificing, he would give up his perfect, holy, righteous son who had never sinned, put sin on him as if he was the sinner, take his life in place of our life. We were all hell-bound. Every person on the face of this earth is a sinner and bound for hell. That is our, our destination. As soon as you're born, that's your destination is hell. And God loves us and loved this world so much that he would give his own son in place of us. That is, that's a strange thing to think of. No earthly king would do such a thing. An earthly king would destroy everybody and everything in the world uh, if he so desired, but not God. God. God didn't do that. Now, don't try to humanize God to think that his love is like ours, and we think that he's just some, you know, that we can do something to cause God to love us more. Like, I'm going to do this good deed, and oh, that'll really please God. And he'll be so happy with me, and he'll love me even more. It does not work that way. You cannot cause God to love you more. You're not loved any more than anybody else in this world, so don't think you're special. I'm not special. If anybody deserves less love, it's me. But we all have the benefit of having the love of God. Human love is fickle. You may love something at one moment, and the next, you'll hate it. I've seen that all my life. There's been things that I've enjoyed and, and thought that I loved in this life. And then something happened. And suddenly, I don't love it anymore. I, I really don't like it. I, I despise it. God's love is not like that. His love has no limits. Our love has limits. We limit our love. And it's usually based upon something that pleases us. So it's a fleshly type of love. Uh, even that one that attracts you, it's it's that fleshly attraction that first draws you to them to cause you to have this love. But God's love is self-sacrificing and is without limits. The Bible says in Romans 5 and 8, But God committed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now that's not how we operate here as humans. 
We operate the, the exact opposite. If you'll clean yourself up, if you'll make yourself look better, if you'll start acting right, then I'll have something to do with you. Not God. God didn't, didn't put restrictions on who he loved. He loved the world, sinners, while we were yet in our sins. And then the next part of verse uh, John 3.16 says that he gave his only begotten son. He gave. God gave. And so, notice that he gives. I think that we all know what the word gave means, right? Do I have to explain it? I will. It's to bestow upon, to give over, to place into another's possession. That's giving. If I have this pen right here and I reach out and I say, here, I'm going to give you this pen. It's yours. It's no longer mine. It's yours. You can do what you want to with it. You can eat it. You can break it. You can do it. And you can you can even write with it, and it's it's whatever you want to do because I gave it to you. I didn't ask for anything in return. I didn't say pay me for this pen. Uh, so this this love this he gave uh, his only begotten son at Christmas time. We give gifts to those that we love, you know. And it's not that we expect something back. We don't go under the Christmas tree and say now if you'll give me ten bucks I'll give you a present now. No, we. We give it to him, and it's what it's more joyful to give than to receive, is to say. I don't know about that. Sometimes we feel like it's the opposite, <laughs> but we give gifts free of charge. Well, God did the same thing. He gave us a gift. Now, this gift was not free. This gift was the most expensive gift to ever be given because it cost Jesus his life. Every drop of his blood, it cost him everything. And so it was not free for God, but it was free for us. In fact, the Bible calls it God's gift. Over in Romans 6 and 23, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's it's a gift of God. The, the Bible says, the gift of God. Also in Ephesians 2 and 8, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So over and over and over in the Bible, we're finding that salvation is the gift, the gift of God. It's a gift that God gives us. I want you to listen to part of the conversation that happened between Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. In John 4 9, we remember the story. Jesus goes there. And uh, it's really out of, it seems like it's out of the way. Uh, the, the Jews are really, don't go into Samaria if, if, if at all possible. But Jesus says that he must go to Samaria. And so he goes off on his own, uh, splits from the disciples, and he meets up with this woman who's at a well drawing water at, the, at a strange time. And we know why she's doing it, because she is a sinner. Uh, she's been married numerous times. She's an outcast of the, of the town, and so she comes out by herself to draw water, and now Jesus shows up, and he asks her for a drink. And so in John 4 and 9, the Bible says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered, and he said to her, If thou knewest, here it is, the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink. Thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So Jesus is introducing this lady to the gift of God. And he says, if you knew who it was, he's talking about himself, 
He's the gift. If you just simply ask, I'll give you living water. Now, living water doesn't mean that that she could take a drink of it. She would never die here on this earth. It means that to take of him. He's the living water. Believe upon him because he's the gift of God. And if you'd simply just believe that he'll give you everlasting life. Now, all of those passages of Scripture show us that salvation is not something you have to buy or work for. The Bible teaches strictly against working for salvation. It's an entirely free gift from God. So, what is the gift that he gave us? The Bible says his only begotten son. Now, that phrase, only begotten, we don't use that word begotten here in our normal language in this day and time. It may have been popular back when the King James Bible was written, but the, the word begotten, and what that really means and defined as is the only one of its kind. So Jesus is the only one of his kind, the only one of God. There's no other like him. He is the only one. Being begotten does not mean he was produced or created or born. Now we know that, uh, you know, when God manifested himself in the flesh, he was born of a virgin as a, as a, a person. But that's not what this is referring to. That's not what it means by his only begotten. His only begotten means his one and only. He, he is eternal. Christ has always been. He was there in the beginning. He's, he's, you can't even go back to where he is because he didn't have a start. He's just always has been. And so he's the only begotten. And again, it's not referring to a physical birth. It's referring to him being the only one of his kind. The only one of God. Now, God has several sons, right? Remember, the Bible talks about the sons of God that came out and, and things like that. And when we get saved, we're considered a child of God. So, you know, God has sons and, and daughters and such. But Jesus is the only one of his kind. Uh, like I said, he was born of flesh and born of man, as it says in John 1 and 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is what we refer to as the incarnation, when God manifested himself in human flesh. Uh, that's, that's one way of it. But the phrase only begotten is also said of someone else in the Bible. It's said of Isaac. In, in Hebrews 11 and 17, the Bible says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now, hold on a minute. Re remember something, but before we do, I'm going to read Genesis 22, 1 and 2. The Bible says this, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. All right. Why would God tell him to take his only son? He had another son. He had a son before Isaac. Does anybody remember Ishmael? Had by Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. And so... He already had another son, but why is he referred to as his only son? And why does the Bible say there in, in the, uh, where we, we just read from in Hebrews uh, that he offered up his only begotten son, referring to Isaac? Well, because he was the only one of his kind. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael 
and, and he had uh, others later, but we're talking about um, Ishmael and Isaac. But Isaac's re- the only one referred to as the only begotten. He's the only one that was born according to God's promise. He's the only one that was promised to be the heir. And so he was Abraham's only begotten son. So if you think about that, we, we think about uh, of him being the only one of his kind. Uh, God didn't ask him to offer up uh, Ishmael. He said to offer up your only son, Isaac. And so we read in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not uh, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, Paul, uh, he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, while God does love us, and he sent his only begotten son here uh, for us, it's actually God's grace that saves us. Now, it took the whole plan. God has always planned that Jesus would come here to save lost sinners. He, He planned it. Uh, before the foundations of the world. The Bible makes that clear. And so it's by grace, though, that we're saved. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There it is again, the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So it is actually God's sovereign, divine mercy and grace which allows us to be saved. He's the one, by the way, that actually instills within you to seek him, to realize that you need to be saved. God's the one that puts that in your heart. You don't do it on your own because you're dead. Sinners, lost sinners are dead. They're dead men and dead women walking. It's only by God. God does it, which brings us to the next part of the verse that whosoever believeth in him. All right, this is going to get interesting. And there's some controversy over what the Bible means when it says whosoever. Now to us, we think, well, that's that's obvious. It means everybody. Whosoever. Well, some say it means only the elect. Some say it only means the Jews. Some say it means Jews and Gentiles. And some say it means all mankind. Well, I like the way Thayer's Greek Dictionary, again, defines the word whosoever. And in there you'll find this word whosoever defined as each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. Now, the word whosoever is actually used 183 times in the King James Bible. Um, 73 times in the Old Testament and 110, the rest of them in the New Testament. Now, a lot of times it's talking, it's just using it in a general term about people and whosoever does this or whosoever does that. But when it comes to defining salvation and it uses the word whosoever, there's a few key verses. Here, John chapter 3, verse 16, of course, is the most widely known. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 11 and 26, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. 
Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 1 John 4, 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And Revelation 22, 17. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. All right. So we have several instances in the Bible related to salvation and also that word whosoever is involved there. And what was that definition? Each, every, any, all, uh, the whole, everyone, all things, everything, everyone. So whosoever. Now, you notice there when I read in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the Bible said whosoever will. Okay, now that word will kind of gets used <laughs> willy-nilly. <laughs> but uh, there's even, um, you know, a lot of Baptist church likes to use the word free will. We got free will. You know, they throw that around a lot. In fact, there's actually a Baptist denomination started in the 1700s in the, in the Carolinas called Free Will Baptist. And it's all based upon the thought that uh, men have free will when it, it comes to God. You, you, you're free to pick him or free to leave him. Free to do this or free to do that. Now, this type of thinking is based on uh, Arminian. I'm going to say it wrong. Arminianism. Uh, Arminianism. Sorry. Which is the opposite of Calvinism or Reformed as it's called today. Now, here in America, we, we live under a constitutional republic. Right? That's what we are. A lot of people say we're a democracy. No, we're, we're a constitutional republic. A governmental constitutional republic. We do not have any idea what it's like to live under a, uh, uh, a monarchy the way they do in England. We just saw yesterday, it was it was broadcast and I've seen it all over Facebook and the internet, all about the, the uh, coronation of king of the king of England there. And uh, interesting things there. They've got a lot of traditions that's been going on. For, I don't remember how long they said it was. It was years and years and years where they have all these same traditions, they have the same Bible, the same crown, the same this, same that, and all this. But they live under a monarchy where the king supposedly has all the power and he tells everybody what to do. It's not really the case now. It doesn't work that way. They still have a parliament. They still have laws and all this stuff. So that king they, they uh, who had his coronation yesterday, he doesn't have a lot of power. Now back in the day though, kings had ultimate power. Whatever they said went. If they said you're doing this, you did that. Or you die. It's your choice. You've got free will there. <laughs> Do it or die. And so you didn't really have free will. We really don't, we, we brag about the United States of America being free. Freedoms. Freedom this, freedom that, you know. Uh, we have the unalienable rights to, to do what we want, all this stuff like that. While we may have to a degree some freedoms, we're free to like congregate together today and and uh, worship God right now. We're free to do that. However, our actions and our freedoms are really limited to whatever the government says they are. Federal, state, local government tells us how much freedom we have. And if they pass a law that says you don't have the freedom to do this, that freedom's gone. You don't have freedom. So we don't truly have freedom. Our rights are only gone as far as the government allows us to have. And truthfully, our free will is limited to a higher power, the government. So 
What does all that have to do with free will when it comes to God and to whosoever? Well, the Bible says in Philippians 2 and 13, get this, listen to this closely, in Philippians 2 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Let me read it again. For it is who? God. It didn't say for it is you. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now that kind of changes things when you think about free will. So it's not like you sit around and in your flesh you think, well, I can do this or I can do that. When it comes to God and whosoever, God is the one which worketh in you. That's what the Bible says. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So some people you may say, I found God, you know. But the truth is, if you're saved, he found you first. He is the one that motivated you to find him. So salvation is entirely of God. Everything is of God. Jesus says in John 6 and 37 through 40, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then further down in John 6 and 44, Jesus continues on. He says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So it's extremely clear that God is the one that, uh, that is the catalyst behind salvation. It's the catalyst behind the whosoever. So the whosoevers are the ones that God has willed to come to him. It's, it's, it's clear as that. God chooses those. That would be... I mean, whosoever means whosoever God chooses because he's the one that instills with us his will. Now, some people say, that's Reformed teaching or that's Calvinistic preaching or whatever like that. Nope, that's Bible teaching. That's Bible preaching. We just read it from the Bible. I don't have a John Calvin book over here telling me what to say. It's straight from God's word. It's what he says. No man can come to me. No man except the Father which has sent me draw him. So you can't go to God on your own. He's the one that has to prompt you to come to him. Now let's look at a few passages of scripture which explains this. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Well, before we do that one, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 1 real quick. I believe it'll, it'll, it'll help you. It helps me a lot, especially when I was first thinking about all this. Ephesians chapter 1. Can't get my pages turned. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Do you see that? 
Look at it again. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, not your will. It doesn't say the good pleasure of your will. It says his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherewith he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. All right, now I think the Bible is pretty clear right there. Salvation is all of God. It's all his will. He's the one that predestined us. If you're saved, he predestined you to be saved. And that's just as clear as the Bible can be. Uh, now, look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. The Bible says, And you hath he quickened, whom were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and has raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us, through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, here the Bible tells us that we are, spiritually speaking, a person is dead without Christ. Dead, that's what the Bible dead in trespasses and sin. You know what dead is, don't you? Do I have to define dead? <laughs> no longer has life. Does not have life. Something that's dead does not have life. A rock does not have life. It's dead. Alright? Dead things cannot do anything. If a squirrel runs out in the middle of the road and you hit it with your car and kill it, it's dead. It cannot revive itself. It's not going to give itself uh, CPR laying in the road. It's going to lay there. It's going to start rotting. Buzzards are going to come, and they're going to pick it clean, take it off, and there'll be nothing but a little fuzzy, greasy uh, spot on the ground in the, in the road. That's what a dead thing. That's what happens to dead things. We could not spiritually revive ourselves 
and be saved. It required someone to revive us, someone to give us life because we were dead in the trespasses of sin. That word quicken that, that we read right there in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, and you hath he quickened, that word quicken right there, that's what it means, to bring to life. To bring to life. It requires God the Father to quicken us, to bring us to life, and when he does, that is when the drawing begins. So that person that's lost out there in their sins, doesn't have a clue about God, no thought about salvation, no thought about sinning, doesn't care one way or the other. When God draws them and quickens them and uh, they realize they're lost in their sins, they first get that first, you know, uh, realizing I'm lost, I need something, I need to do something. And by the way, God uses people to, to draw those people for him. He uses us. He gave us the great commission to go out and preach the gospel unto the world. Why? Because that world's lost. They need to know about him. So that is the drawing when we preach the gospel. How can they hear without a preacher, you know? Um, and uh, they're saved by the word of God, by listening and God's grace. And so we can't spiritually bring ourselves from the dead. God has to do it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. We'll be finished here in a moment. 2 Timothy 7 through 10. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Before the world began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you see that? So God's plan of salvation is through the gospel. What's the gospel? The, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. What does the Bible say? Whosoever believeth on him. Believeth on who? The Son. The gospel. The one who was sent here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. All we have to believe is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We believe on him. In him as Savior. Not just that he existed. A lot of people believe that Jesus existed, that he was a teacher and you know, and all this. A lot of people believe that. That's not believing in him. Believing in him means that you understand that he's the Savior. He's the, one, the only one that can save you. And so we believe in him. Anyone that believes in Jesus is because God instilled it within them to believe in him. God is the one that calls them to believe. And so what is that? A person must believe to be saved, according to the Bible, in him. you got to believe in him, the meaning Christ. And so uh, we spend a lot of time going over that first part of the verse there, but quickly just look at that last part of John 3.16 again. It says, should not perish but have everlasting life. Now we're going to look more at the meaning of this in our next study, uh, but let me say this first of all. That word should does not mean perhaps. It doesn't mean should. You could say shall or will. You could put that there in the place of that. But when we use the word should in our, our 
modern day English, it's kind of like, well, you should do this, but, you know, maybe not. That's the way we use the word should. Or you should be doing that. But uh, here it's more the meaning of it will, it shall, it's going to happen. And so not a perhaps. It's not a question of salvation. It's actually assurance of salvation. So we can be assured that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We can believe that. Everlasting life means exactly what you think it means. It means everlasting, never-ending, eternal, forever. That's what everlasting is. Now, some people think that everlasting means as long as you don't sin again. Whoops. What? You mean to tell me that I can lose my salvation if I sin after I've been saved? If you can lose your salvation, you were never saved to begin with. You cannot lose your salvation if you sin after you've been saved. If you can do something to keep your salvation, then you could have done something to earn it. And the Bible says it's not by works. It's by grace through faith that you're saved. So if you have to work to keep your salvation, then it's not real. It's not a real salvation. Simply by God's grace through faith. And so what does the Bible say? For God so loved who? The world. Put your name there. God so loved Byron of all people. you believe that? God so loved the world that he gave who? His only begotten son. Who is the only begotten? He's the only one of his kind. He's the only Savior. He's the only Messiah. He's the only one who was sent here to die for people's sins. But whosoever believes in him should not perish. Perish. Perish means to die. Perish means to go to hell and pay for your sins. That's what perish means. It don't mean that you uh, get buried and, and you rot away and you're you're obliviated. No, when you die, when you close your eyes in death, you're either going to heaven or hell, and perish means you went to hell. Because life, eternal life, means living in heaven. And so, uh, that uh, whoever believe, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal, forever. So when we get saved, we believe, we hear the gospel, uh, we hear the word of God preached, and we believe that. We believe that Lord Jesus came here and he died for my sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day and he went, ascended up to heaven to sit on the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for you and me. We All we got to simply believe is the gospel and in Jesus. Believe it on him and confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's all part of repentance, by the way. Repentance is not a work. Repentance is realizing that you're lost, you can't save yourself, so you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ to save you. You realize, and, and all that, by the way, was started by God. God's the one that started that happening. He's the one that instilled with you to realize, oh, I'm lost. I am going to go to hell. I need to be saved. I need to find how I can be saved. And that's when you start seeking. That's when God's drawing. No man can come to the Father except or come to me except the Father draw him. And I will not lose any of those the Father gives me. So that's how salvation works. And so we're going to stop right there. We'll pick up in uh, John uh, 3 and 17. Uh, next time, Lord willing. Uh, it won't be next Sunday. Next Sunday is Mother's Day. And so I'm praying for the Lord to give me a Mother's Day message. And uh, pray that that will happen. If not, then we'll, we'll just preach whatever he has us to preach. But uh, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer.
Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning thanking you so much for the message. Lord, I pray that it's been helpful. And Lord, I'm praying that you give us a deep understanding, God, to, to know the deep things of God. And Lord, that we can help those that may be struggling, those that may be questioning, may not understand how salvation works. And God, that uh, you, can, you can help us, Lord. Lord, we're praying for these uh, requests we had earlier. You know uh, each one, what they need. Praying, God, that you provide uh, strength and healing for those that need that. And, God, we're just uh, praying for our church here at Porchlight. Praying for Northside as well, Lord. We're praying for all these churches today that's trying, Lord, to share the gospel with this lost world. Help us now, Father, and we'll give you the honor and praise and glory. For Jesus' name we pray, and amen.